Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Now, a lot of the people I interview on the Beeson Podcast are kind of old and gray and wrinkled uh, geezers like me. But today I have a young 31-year-old leader in today's church, Colin Hansen. Colin, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Dr. George. So you represent a little bit of a, a new generation of leadership in the Lord's Church. I first met you at Christianity Today. You were a writing for us. You were a staffer at, at CT. Tell us about your experience of going from there to your present position. You know, I actually talked to you the first time I was in college at Northwestern University writing for a campus magazine about the Reformation and the differences between Protestants and Catholics, and you took a long, maybe a half an hour or an hour, and talked to me, just a nobody journalism student working on that. So I didn't even remember that. (laughs) And that connection was via Christianity Today. So I had the privilege for several years of working as the news editor for CT and also doing a lot of the theological coverage, uh, acquiring articles, editing those articles, conceiving them. And uh, that was a great privilege. Then I went to seminary at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for a few years, did the Master of Divinity, and then accepted a position as the editorial director with the Gospel Coalition coming out of that. And one of the things that's so exciting about the Gospel Coalition is that it's almost a, a merger for me, my current position, between what I've done in the past with Christianity Today, a lot of news, um, contemporary events, a rapid response to um, current events, but then also with a distinctly pastoral focus in what we're doing uh, with a lot of church leaders in mind, what's going to be helpful to people in their everyday ministry, from ministry, general ministry questions to um, you know, how do I interpret the Bible to how to interpret interpret the world around me. So, um, so it's just a it's a fun fun opportunity with the Gospel Coalition, kind of a, a position that I made up myself. We're a young organization uh, that's just kind of uh, growing rapidly the last few years. Now, I want you to say a little more about the Gospel Coalition. A lot of our listeners will, of course, have heard of it. Maybe check your website. It's uh, you get a lots of hits every month, right? Yeah, it's it's been growing uh, rapidly the last couple years. It's exciting because we seem to be seeing the Lord at work, really calling His church back to what is of first importance. And that's the gospel. We know that our churches can get sidetracked by any number of different things in many different directions and lose lose focus on that. So our founders are Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian New York and D.A. Carson of Trinity Divinity School. And really, they came together and attracted a number of other like-minded leaders from around North America, a diverse collection. We have Anglicans, we have Baptists, we have Presbyterians. So you're really a coalition. A really really yeah. a coalition and, uh, and trying to uh, call for reform in our churches and get back to what the Scriptures teach and especially to see how all the Scripture points to Christ. So we do that on our website, publishing several articles every day. We do that through book reviews. Uh, we do that through media. We do roundtable interviews, bringing different church leaders together and getting them sometimes to disagree but charitably about things. We also do events. So we do a women's conference every other year and then a national conference Mm -hmm. every other year as well. Colin, let me ask you a question. 
What is the gospel? Well, I think you have to go right there to to First Corinthians fifteen, and you've got to you got to start there and start to look. That's what of first importance: the the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, who died a death, the redeeming substitutionary death for sinners, who who uh, satisfied the wrath of God, and ultimately then triumphed over death in that resurrection, and now all who believe in him are called into eternal life as their sins have been forgiven. We also need to go back and see how Christ's life embodies, really not only fulfills the law, but then also provides for us an example of what that life looks like that only his death and resurrection make possible. You know, it's very similar, of course, to the word evangelical in its root etymology, you know, the the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Redeemer, our Savior, who paid the price for our sins, rose again, uh, and one day is coming again. I mean, a lot of that gets encapsulated in the Apostles' Creed. It's, it's certainly scriptural. It's a word we hear a lot, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit later in this uh, interview, I think, about that whole um, question of what is evangelicalism in relation to the gospel, because you've written a book about that uh, called The Spectrum of Evangelicalism. But before we get to that, let's go back to the Gospel Coalition for just a minute. Uh, I like what I hear and read about the Gospel Coalition for several reasons. One is everything I see is really thoughtfully done. It has a quality feel to it. You don't put out sloppy stuff. You don't put out, you know, kind of things you have to be embarrassed about and apologize for two days later, uh, at least generally. I haven't noticed a lot of that. That's <laughs> what we're trying. And also, I think the tenor of what you're talking mm-hmm. you, you spoke a moment ago of speaking charitably, even when you have differences. I sense that is a part of the way you present the gospel in our generation. And I think that very much speaks of the spirit of Jesus himself for us today. So I applaud you for that. Well, thank you. It's, it's difficult to do, especially because one of the things that I discuss often with our Vice President Tim Keller is how to survive and thrive in an Internet age with it is driven by controversy and yet keep a positive message, that positive message that, that Christ brought. And so we, we generally speaking try to be very encouraging and how to show that, go- how that gospel works out in all different spheres of life, how it calls us to repentance and, and, and leads us towards sanctification and ultimately to anticipate Christ's return. But at times it does also mean that we have to be critical of trends that are worrisome. So the, the, the key distinction there is to think, how could I make this argument in such a way that the person who's hearing it could actually respond and maybe even be changed by that? I don't think we always succeed for that, but that's the goal we're trying for at least. I think that's one of your gifts. As I've come to know you over these years, um, been friends together, you, you kind of embody that in yourself. And I think you're in a wonderful position in the Gospel Coalition to advance that, uh, I, I would call it a tenor and tone of your work. Now, uh, I, I want I want to go to some of your writing, because for a 31-year-old, you are pretty prolific. Now, I have a son, Christian George, whom you know. Even more prolific. Well, he's, he's, <laughs> he's written, I think, now six books, but you're right behind his heels with three or four. The first book, maybe it was your first book, that certainly got a lot of attention, was called Young, Restless, and Reformed. It's a great read. Not a long book, but a very exciting book. Tell us about Young, Restless, and Reformed. Well, that was another project that you helped me a lot with, and that went back to my days with Christianity Today. It was a was a cover story in 2006, and 
a lot of it was a journalistic exploration of my experience. Um, I had the privilege in, in college of being involved in a Campus Crusade for Christ group, and it was very common in this group that we were we were Bible centered. You know, everything that we did had to be rooted in Scripture. Very evangelistic. It's what you've come to expect from Campus Crusade. But then also, what I think was so key. We were theologically inclined and respectful of the Christian tradition. And um, that was all very natural for me because of the people who modeled that um, in my life, people who were seminary students and, and pastors. And so when I got to Christianity Today, there was a lot of talk about different trends in the church. And, and at the time, around 2006, a lot of publishers were looking at the emerging church. That was kind of a herald of the future. What is the emerging church? Emerging church. Well, you know, there's a lot of different dimensions there. But at the time, that was all just getting sorted out. You might have somebody like Brian McLaren, who'd be really seeming pushing the envelopes on orthodoxy, calling for uh, a, a wider orthodoxy, which meant in some cases denying mm-hmm. orthodoxy. <laughs> but then you'd also have people ascribed in the emerging churches like Mark Driscoll, who would not be doing anything like that, but might be open to different ways of doing church today, or a different presentation, at least, of, of church leadership. So, so there was a lot of talk about that. Publishers were really cranking out books. And a little bit was, it just wasn't something that I recognized in my experience. It seemed to be something that was especially characteristic of people who maybe went to Christian colleges, which I had not. I was, if, if I was reacting against anything, it would have been more of a, a mainline upbringing rather than... You were Methodist, I right? was I not a Methodist growing up, and there were some good aspects of that for sure, but not in my specific local church. The gospel not regularly presented, not central, and the Bible not regarded as the ultimate authority. So that's why when I got to college, I responded so eagerly to people who would preach for 30 minutes and teach me scripture and then who lived out the gospel and just really made a difference in their lives. And they were distinct from others that we lived around. So it was trying to bring together in Young Restless Reformed what I had experienced in my in my own life and then what we were trying to discern as journalists in the broader evangelical world. And then we kind of turned our attention back toward my experience, and the essential journalistic question was, is this just me and my little group of friends, or is this a much wider phenomenon? And so we started to look at things like, why is John Piper so popular today? Who is Mark Dever, and what are the nine marks of a healthy church? Uh, and what's this sovereign grace movement that seems to be kind of a charismatic Calvinism? Um, what's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention? You know, why is Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, what, why did it change so much? Why did it need to change in some ways? Just uh, traveled around, visited these different places, and found that there really was a of rather dynamic and growing movement and a coalition to come back to what we were talking about before, a coalition of evangelicals crossing denominational boundaries, trying to keep that primary focus on the gospel, but also understanding it in a particularly reformed um, way. So something of a populist movement in the way that it is a, there's a groundswell, it's coming from different quarters, and yet there are certain central themes. There's a strong appeal to the Reformation, to the sovereignty of God, to the primacy of Scripture, uh, to the seriousness of living a holy life. I think that's a part of it, too. All of these things are uh, kind of coalesced together in a movement that, you know, 
we have to say, is this really a movement of the Holy Spirit for our time? Because it's not anything that's been contrived by this or that leader or this or that institution, but it it does seem to be something that's calling the church and maybe a new generation back to some foundational principles. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not the most numerically large movement. I would say still the, the church growth movement has changed in a lot of different ways, but that remains a much larger phenomenon. Of course, the Pentecostal and charismatic expressions globally are dominant in so many ways and, and also continue to grow in the United States, especially with immigration and, and uh, ethnic minorities. But certainly this is, a, this is a, a vibrant expression of reformational Christianity that is, I think, more assertive and more prominent today than it would have been 20 or 25 years ago. Now, I want to talk about this book that you have, uh, I guess you're the editor, aren't you, of mm-hmm. this book called Four Views on the Spectrum of Evangelicalism, published by Zondervan, just came out a few weeks ago. Um, I know the contributors, uh, particularly uh, several of them are my good friends, are Albert Moeller, Jr. He was actually my student in a previous life. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And Kevin T. Bowder who is now also a seminary president, I believe, in Minnesota. Uh, Roger E. Olson, who teaches at Truett Theological Seminary at Baylor. And John G. Stackhouse, Jr., who's a theologian, teaches at Regent College in Vancouver. Now, what's interesting about this book is that each of them kind of define and stake out a position on this question of the spectrum of evangelicalism. Uh, Can you summarize briefly, because we don't have a lot of time on this podcast, those four persons and the position they argue for and present in the spectrum of evangelicalism. Well, as you know, this is quite an interesting cast of characters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when, when I mentioned earlier about the Gospel Coalition trying to call the evangelical movement to reformation and to call it back to these issues of first importance, and even in my definition of the gospel, all of that is contested territory by people who describe themselves as evangelicals. So so what we're trying to express in this book is, you know, how do different people come at this question of who is an evangelical? So you have, I think one of the interesting parts about the book, Kevin Botter coming from a fundamentalist mm-hmm. perspective. Now, a lot of people might think, what does a fundamentalist have to do with evangelicalism? But as you know, as a student of history, there were not two distinct movements of evangelicalism and fundamentalism until probably the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who would be described as evangelicals today would have been described as fundamentalists in the fundamentalist modernist controversies of, say, the 1920s mm-hmm. earlier on. So, so Barter presents a, a fundamentalist view, a rather, rather positive one, I would say, that would be unrecognizable to maybe a lot of listeners who associate it with a certain cultural backwardness. So mainly I would say there's a certain pessimism in the fundamentalism that's presented by Botter. Um, But then there's also essentially a a stronger note of separation than Mm -hmm, you'd see mm -hmm. in in Dr. Muller's presentation. a true fundamentalist in that way rather than an evangelical. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Especially that that notion of second-degree separation. You have to define that. What is second-degree separation? Separation would be you disagree with me, I disagree with you, so we'll we'll separate. Okay, second-degree is that you will separate from somebody who agrees with you but because that person associates with somebody else who disagrees with yeah. you. So, yeah. for example, a lot of fundamentalists would be, asso- would be 
you know, would look at the Southern Baptist Convention, and they might be okay with Southern Baptists, some of them, but they would separate it because of certain associations that the SBC mm-hmm. would have. So that's fundamentalism and one of the distinguishing characteristics. So uh, Dr. Moeller represents a confessional evangelical viewpoint. Uh, we debated that terminology quite a bit. Some might describe it as conservative evangelical, but we were afraid of some of the political connotations there. Confessional is not necessarily a one particular confession there. It's the idea that evangelicalism can be defined by its theological nature. So you can describe certain doctrines as being distinctively evangelical. You hold to them, and you're an evangelical. If you reject them, you're not. So that's kind of the, that's what would distinguish a confessional evangelical. Certainly there was a lot of pushback there uh, from Stackhouse and especially from Olson. Uh, Stackhouse, uh, representing what he described as the generic evangelical viewpoint, he does so with a lot of wit and gusto in his uh, chapters and his responses. His view there is that, take one doctrine like penal substitutionary atonement. I mentioned earlier uh, the wrath of God and Christ having satisfied that on the cross. Uh, It's a controversial doctrine these days. It's described as divine child abuse by some people. Well, uh, Stackhouse would take a view and say, this is absolutely biblical. This is characteristic of many evangelicals uh, today and in the past. However, who, you know, who are we, any one of us, to impose that on everybody else to say, you know, you have to believe this to be an evangelical or else you're not credible in that regard. So that's what, so, so there are certain beliefs that are important, but who has the authority to be able to impose that on this diverse movement. Um, so that's the essential question, and one of the main things that differentiates a uh, generic from a confessional evangelical. And then Roger Olson comes in as a post-conservative evangelical, and he he distinguishes in something pretty interesting from uh, the post-war Carl Henry, uh, Billy Graham evangelicalism, from a sort of second great awakening, broadly experiential evangelicalism. So he would say, again, if anybody calls himself an evangelical, again, there's no, there's no papacy, there's no magisterium, there's nobody to say yes, you're in, or yes, you're out. Um, if you have an ex- a Jesus experience, essentially, and call yourself an evangelical, then you are one, for all intents and purposes. Nobody could tell you otherwise. So that's the, that's the expression that he teases out. But you can tell, then, there's going to be a lot of disagreement there among the contributors. That's four views. We could probably add a number of other views well, I, as well. I would like to give a response to all four views. <laughs> However, we don't have time for that. But I thought it was really interesting the way you set up the book because you have these four principal uh, positions articulated by these individuals, and then you have each one of them responding to each one of them uh, in order, so that so that the the book has a feel of something like a conversation that's going on, and that makes it a very interesting book to read and to learn from, uh, rather than just having four different blocks of material. You have a kind of interactivity going on all the time. That's a very well uh, thought out. Of course, there have been other books on these different four view approaches, but I, I think it really worked with this one, maybe because the issues are so visceral. They're so live in a way. A lot's at stake for these people in, in, in this particular uh, discussion. It seems like it could be an academic issue um, in one sense, but for readers, I think this is a helpful way to explain the significance. Take what we saw last year with Rob Bell's uh, book on hell. Okay, so is Rob Bell an evangelical? 
Well, he doesn't really like labels. I mentioned the emerging church before. He's as prototypical as anybody with the emerging church, but he would never describe himself as such, which I would find to be actually quintessentially emerging, <laughs> <laughs> you know, rejecting these labels. So so going back with Bell, now he went to Wheaton College as an undergrad. Well, if that's not evangelical, I don't know what is. Then he went to Fuller Seminary. Well, Fuller Seminary was an absolutely pivotal organization in the post-war evangelical movement. It's been controversial in many ways mm-hmm. since then, but absolutely it's got those evangelical bona fides. Well, okay, but he comes at and takes a lot of doctrines that evangelicals would regard as being absolutely crucial, such as penal substitutionary atonement or simple doctrine of hell, things like that, and really, however you want to describe it, really treats them harshly, you know, gives a very um, visceral critique of them as rather pastorally inapplicable uh, for today's for today's society. Well, is Rob Bell then an evangelical? Um, do I decide that? Do you decide that? Does the president of Wheaton College decide that with his diploma in his hands, with the ability to, to revoke it or something like that? I mean, does he get to go to evangelical conferences? Uh, you know, that's the question, and that's what that's what, what kind of practical issue that these contributors try to work out. We also talk about something that's near and dear to you, evangelicals and Catholics, together, mm-hmm. and looking at that and, and um, trying to decide, you know, how do we – there are many different responses and continue to be to that movement, and what do those responses tell us about how different people conceive of this motley crew that we call evangelicalism. Well, you know, uh, this is a fascinating uh, discussion. And uh, maybe in the future we can do another uh, (laughs) podcast and pursue some of these lines because they open up lots of areas we could uh, pursue in discussion. Uh, Let me ask you, you, you're more of a historian. uh, You're an expert on the past, not the future. I always say that to people when they want me to predict trends. But uh, if you had to look at the current say, spectrum of evangelicalism, as you've outlined it here, and think down the road, maybe 25, 35 years, when you look like me, uh, Colin, <laughs> um, then what's it going to look like? Will you will you have these four positions jockeying still? Will one be dominant? Will one have dropped out? What do you think? Yeah, I've learned a lot from from people like you in this regard, and then also my my bosses and and Carson and Keller. And um, I think it's fairly obvious that we're not likely to see one particular perspective emerge as dominant. Probably what we'll continue to see are competing perspectives emerging alongside one another. And as competitors, really, for those who find themselves in the middle. So you'll continue to see people attracted to Rob Bell's approach that, that he typifies uh, to, to, again, to, to change certain elements of orthodoxy to accommodate the culture. Really, that's been part of American religion and Christianity in general. There have always been people trying to, to, to change things, to try to adapt. So I think that has a lot of appeal. Clearly, you can see that in book sales and things like that. But you'll also see, I think, a, a strong pushback. That, that, that very trend itself will illustrate the need for a counter-trend, a counter-trend that recognizes that the degree to which people are attracted to that, to the Bell approach, 
means that we need to reinvigorate orthodoxy in our churches, that maybe we've missed something, that that maybe we need to renew our efforts in youth ministry, to renew our efforts of spiritual formation in our colleges and in our seminaries, our appreciation for the past. So I think you'll probably see those those trends, both of them continue to grow and to often come into conflict with one another. I just want to commend you for the way you've brought together not only this book, but all, all the approach that you do in your work. You've got a good mind. You, you're analytical. Um, you're, you're not demonizing people. You try to be accurate in your description. And yet, at the same time, uh, you don't lapse into a kind of anemic neutrality. But you are a person of conviction. Uh, you believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, you have a witness for Christ that comes through in a winsome and warm-hearted way. So may God continue to bless you, Colin Hansen, and all the work you're doing for the Gospel Coalition and throughout the body of Christ. And thank you for this wonderful conversation today. Thank you, Dr. George. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.